to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be marking five years since the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. Also going to be discussing the recent elections in St. Kitts and Nevis and what that means both for that country and for the Caribbean. And it's Friday, which means we're having our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics and struggle. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today. Today, we are very happy to be joined by Daryl Lamont Jenkins, Executive Director of the One People's Project. Daryl, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. It's been a while. Absolutely. Absolutely. Glad to have you back. And Daryl, today marks five years since the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, arguably the largest white supremacist rally in the U.S. uh, for some years. And on this day, uh, a 21-year-old James Field Jr. uh, drove his car into a crowd of anti-fascist counter-protesters, killing 32-year-old Heather Heyer and injuring almost 30 others. And uh, for that, I believe as we speak, he's uh, um, serving two life sentences. Now, before this incident, uh, he was seen near a far right group called uh, Vanguard America, though the group denies he was a member. And they've since rebranded as Patriot Front and are still active. And as recent as this past June, actually attempted to cause a riot at a pride celebration event in Idaho. Now, Daryl, you were there uh, in Charlottesville, Virginia during this period. And before we get into anything else. I'm just sort of generally curious what you remember from that time. Uh, how are you sort of viewing it a few years after the fact? And just how do you see how, you know, things have unfolded in our political landscape, if you will, uh, following from this event, as I feel, you know, it's really had some deep impacts. Well, it's funny because I was talking with this with some uh, fellow members of OPP, One People's Project, my group. And um, we were reminiscing about how we were saying that this was going to happen, that um, this was more likely going to be the alt-right's ultimate in, um, in regards to they was on a high ever since Donald Trump became president. But this was going to be where everybody sees them for who they are and start rejecting them. Um, we expected people at some point during Trump's presidency to be hurt and killed behind this nonsense. That was the day. That was the day. And I remember when we were drive we was actually driving down. Me and a crew was actually driving down to Charlottesville um the night of um August eleventh when they brought out the tiki torches. We had heard just a couple of minutes before we heard about that news that the National Guard has been activated. And me being a veteran of all kinds of um, rallies like this, when we heard that, we knew how serious this was going to get. And when we heard that we had just a few people having to deal with the um, tiki torches, we were concerned that we weren't down there helping them out. Um, There was a, a lot of... There was some calm here and there, but there was a lot of fights as 
obviously. And then um, after all the fighting had happened and everybody was trying to cool down, that's when we found out about Heather Heyer. People were coming out letting us know that somebody had gotten killed and it was it just took the wind completely out of our sails. And at this time, we were just trying to get over the fact that this was being broadcast live on the news. We really didn't know that at the time. We were just being told that, told all these rumors that they were hearing on Twitter and that um, somebody had gotten shot. Um, We didn't even know that um, somebody had popped off some rounds until two weeks later when the ACLU produced the video. I mean, it was that, um, how should I say, crazy. It was that. It was just that crazy that day. And when Heather Heyer was murdered, it was pretty much uh, the last straw for us. And we was just like, we got to do something about this, and we got to do something about it now. This went way too far. Um, and incidentally, you were saying that um, Vanguard America slash Patriot Front um, say that they did not have any um, – information have any dealings with james fields we actually have video i actually found it yesterday last night when i was going through some of the um old footage we have thomas rousseau the head of patriot front and and then with vanguard america um organizing people to get in line some of his people to get in line and um basically just create some sort of a bulwark one of those people in the video was james fields Wow. You see him forty seconds, and it's like I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna throw it up on Twitter sometime during the day so people can see it. But um, but when I saw it, I was like, there it is, right there. I mean, James Fields was in kind of sort of their uniform that day. He was holding their shields, so it wasn't like I do not believe for one minute that um they had no idea who he was and what he was about. So I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but um, after what we have seen in the years since, I'm less and less inclined to believe what their quote-unquote official statement is. But it was a crazy day. It was an insane day. It's, it's, kind, it's something that I have seen before, as I said, but not to the point where somebody had died. And that really just was a gut punch. It made us realize that we got to fight this and we got to fight this harder. Yeah, definitely. And there's an aspect to this, Daryl, that I think is important because we also um, continue to see this in the streets today. I was hoping you could describe how the police were operating and how they were behaving uh, uh, in the midst of all this, because, I mean, their actions, or perhaps more specifically their inaction, I think uh, helped facilitate a lot of the violence that we saw there as well. And that's what it is. That, I mean, I think you just pretty much said it right there, the inaction. And I would say, look, we're not going to rely on the police. We never have and we never will. Wow, did they give us um, the reason why on that day? I also point out the—I fa- mean, there was um, the fact that um, they just stood and let the um, fighting go on until somebody declared um, uh, declared a riot, declared a riot situation, and they just shut it all down. But um, in the end, they really weren't doing anything, and. Um, and things went as they did. The thing that really annoyed the hell out of me is the same thing that annoys me about January 6th. 
they let them go home. They let them go home. And despite all the, and they just, they granted, they picked up some of them later, but they let them go home like they did nothing wrong. And that would have never happened to any of us if we were the ones that was um, responsible for that kind of carnage, for that kind of tragedy. The only people that got arrested in Charlottesville that day was James Field and a topless woman. Those are the only two people that got arrested that day. And there were so many that really deserved arrest as evidenced by the fact that they're in jail now. This is why I always tell people we protect ourselves. Um, many of us in Charlottesville, including myself, were strapped up that day. We were armed. We were prepared because they were saying that they were coming armed. And indeed, the militia groups were out there strapped up. The Klan was out there strapped up. So we were. Um, and we were because we had to make sure that when the police fell short of their job, we were going to make sure we did ours. And I'm glad that we had. And I'm most importantly, I'm glad that none of us had to fire off around. And the one guy that did, a Klansman, um, is still sitting in jail right now for pulling that stunt. So um, it goes back to, again, we protect ourselves. They showed us that they're not there for us. They're there for whomever controls them, honestly. Definitely. And if we look at what happened in the aftermath of the Unite the Right, and I think specifically because of um, the, the the murder of Heather Heyer, there was some ser- there was a serious split in the far right movement in the U.S. because a lot of the groups did not want to be uh, associated with that, even though many of them constantly uh, preach a violent rhetoric, violent, racist, anti-Semitic, uh, sexist, and uh, you know trans transphobic and homophobic language and all of that. And so you fast forward to the um, anniversary demonstration that Jason Kessler and some others tried to hold here in Washington, D.C., and there was a massive uh, counter demonstration that was held in response to it, organized by the Answer Coalition. And um, I mean, it was attended by groups and people that spanned uh, the political spectrum from liberals to communists and so on. And the this counter protest really dwarfed the uh, uh, Unite the Right uh, rally to piece that that eventually showed up. And it was just a show of, of overwhelming counterforce to these uh, fascist elements. And uh, to this day, I felt like, you know, uh, there's a lot of groups within the far right that kind of imploded. Some of them reorganized, some of them rebranded and things like this. And so even though from an organizational standpoint, the far right, I think, sort of lost in that moment. If we look at the, the ripple effects of uh, Charlottesville and the original Unite the Right rally and how some of these things have unfolded in the time since, we can look at, you know, the George Floyd protest from just two years ago. And in the two weeks following uh, George Floyd's murder by uh, Derek Chauvin, there were 19 deaths that are said to be connected to the, the demonstrations. And in less than two months after, there were cars driven into demonstrations 68 times. 
68 times someone drove their car into demonstrations trying to recreate the murderous conditions that killed Heather Heyer and injured so many others in Charlottesville. And we saw states like Florida and others actually passing laws, um, basically making it legal for people to do that and trying to criminalize a a protest and things like this. Now, when, when we also look at the issue of racist vigilante murders, I mean, you know, we recall the the, the Pittsburgh synagogue massacre that killed 11 people, um, uh, the massacre at El Paso at Walmart targeting uh, Latin folks, which uh, left 23 people dead. And most recently, we had the shooting at a supermarket in a black neighborhood in Buffalo, New York, that left 10 people dead. And then, of course, there was a, a Kyle Rittenhouse who murdered two people at a demonstration in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and he's been raised up as a, a hero by the far right in the time since. And so it's just clear, Daryl, that we are absolutely still uh, uh, trying to dress the wounds of uh, uh, Charlottesville. And we're still seeing the consequences of it play out today, which I think points to an ongoing need to organize against uh, this uh, still, I think, intensifying uh, a violent far right uh, uh, a movement, if you will, that I think particularly as we uh, draw closer to the midterms and, uh, you know, eventually the next presidential election in two years when we're going to see these far right Trumpist elements make a real play for power here in the U.S., we're going to have to continue to organize against this and to be able to protect ourselves and the community. Absolutely. I mean, we, if anybody thought that they were going to go away after Charlottesville, um, they were fooling themselves because the truth of the matter is all they had to do was just simply rebrand, which is what they did. And, and what, um, the biggest thing that they did that was important was the fact that, um, they don't hold a lot of, um, announced public rallies. Now you just see the flash mobs. Now you just see a sticker on the wall or something like that. Maybe the National Socialist Movement does a rally every now and again, but they're sparsely um, attended. And like you said, with um, um, with the anniversary of the United the Right, the first anniversary um, I should point out, um, they didn't come up, they didn't um, rally around Jason Kessler the way they did in um Charlottesville, they were fighting with each other. They were breaking away from each other and starting um, new, uh, more palatable groups. The Proud Boys came into vogue even more so because they, um, even though they were in Charlottesville, members of the Proud Boys were in Charlottesville, they were the group that could be a little bit more, you can do a little bit more plausible deniability. Now, they killed that with January 6th, so that means that there'll be another kind of... um, a group that will come up behind them, but they never go away unless you make them go away. And we should point out something else here too. The, um, January 12th was the 20th anniversary of a huge rally, huge rally in York, Pennsylvania, which saw similar parallels to what we saw in Charlottesville, up to and including the neo-Nazi driving into a crowd of people. Um, no one got killed in that one, and that Nazi served two years in jail. Now. We go from 20, we go from 2002 to 2017. That was the distance between the two intense situations in the streets between white supremacists. Of course, there were some other um, situations that we had in that time. But 
the point I'm making is that what we, the violence that we have seen amongst the right, whether you are talking about rallies, whether you are talking about various incidents, whether you, um, be it Dylan Roof or Brendan Tarrant down in um, New Zealand, it's been more frequent. The frequency over the past five years is what's concerning people. I mean, we had Charlottesville five years ago, and then in 2021, we had January 6th. And we also have the shootings and the murders that um, a lot of these right-wing groups are committing, whether you're talking about Tree of Life or whether you're talking about Buffalo. And that is where we got to say, okay, there is something going on, and we're going to have to stop it like now. If we do not do that, we may find ourselves to be the victims of their nonsense. And I think we are. I think we are going to do something about that. Um, I just don't want to wait until the next person dies before we do. And I think um, we really have to come to terms with um, how to fight it, especially since they want to be so prominent in this day and age, especially since they are prominent in this day and age. Um, We really have to just step up our game as well. Absolutely. And I'm glad that you brought up uh, January 6th, Daryl. And that's actually the last thing I wanted to ask you about, ask you about, because I feel like there's no greater uh, example of how um, the impact of Charlottesville is still being felt um, other than this fascist uh, assault on the Capitol, which, of course, is undergoing uh, hearings and investigations right now, although I continue to maintain that, you know, the, the after the immediate aftermath of that was completely bungled by, uh, uh, you know, the government here in this country in terms of holding Trump and these other militia groups uh, accountable for their obvious role in that. But how do you see January 6th as an outgrowth of uh, uh, Charlottesville, Daryl, and what it says about uh, uh, the level at which the right movement in this country is operating at right now. The fact that you saw people um, in Charlottesville that ended up becoming January 6th defendants speaks directly to that. I mean, we have Enrique Tario, we have Gabriel Brown, um, they are, and we have others whose names I can't, re- I can't think of right now who were in Charlottesville. Oh yeah, Nick Fuentes that were also in January 6th, the printers of um, the America First crowd, the Goiter movement. And when you see so many people coming from both, uh, attending both events, that tells you just how far they are going to go. You know, I mean, it's not surprising. They've always said they were going to do this. We just weren't listening. And it's one of the reasons why I always keep saying, you think, if Charlottesville was a wake-up call, why did you fall asleep on January 6th? Because you won the election? No, because I can assure you, judging from the way they're responding from the ra- to the raid at Mar-a-Lago, they want to do it again. And again, you may be the victim of whatever it is they do. I mean, yesterday we had somebody shoot up an FBI building or try to attack the FBI by himself. Who knows what's going to happen in the in the days, weeks, and months to come? Especially if they, especially if November doesn't happen the way they want it to. Who knows what's going to go down? So if you are seeing the same people 
saying and doing the same thing that results in either what Charlottesville over January 6th, take that to heart. Period. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Daryl, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're going to move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about recent elections in St. Kitts and Nevis. And we're happy to be joined by Dr. Tammany John, professor at Clark Atlanta University and Caribbean regional analyst. Dr. John. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. And Dr. John, uh, St. Kitts and Nevis held early general elections recently that saw the victory of the St. Kitts and Nevis Labor Party, or the SKNLP, uh, which is led by Dr. Terrence Drew, a Cuban-trained medical practitioner who will become the new prime minister, ousting uh, Prime Minister Timothy Harris of the People's Labor Party. Now, St. Kitts and Nevis is not a, a country that uh, I feel like we hear about or discuss a lot here in the West, doctor. So I was hoping you could help us understand some of the political context of what was happening in St. Kitts and Nevis leading up to this election and why the victory of the SKNLP is uh, noteworthy. Yeah, so I think that it's great that you mentioned that St. Kitts and Nevis isn't necessarily a country that we talk about often. So to just you know, frame it a bit before we talk about sort of what just happened there. St. Kitts and Nevis is one of the smallest Caribbean countries. I think that the population is maybe only a bit over 50,000 people. And a big majority of the population in St. Kitts and Nevis are under the age of 40. And I think that this is important when we talk about how uh, Dr. Drew was just voted in because he is seen as someone who is new and refreshing. Because prior to the uh, elections, which just happened in St. Kitts and Nevis, which was sparked by a no-confidence vote, similar to what we've seen in Guyana a few years ago, the Labor Party had controlled St. Kitts or the government in St. Kitts for over two decades. So it is not as if the Labor Party is this new party that came in and was able to, you know, do this big major upset but it's rather that they changed leadership and brought in someone who is younger that the sort of population could identify with. So as I was saying, they're a small Caribbean country. Not a lot of people live there. A lot of the people who are voting or participating in politics in the country are under the age of 40. And also St. Kitts and Nevis, it's two islands. And historically it was three because Anguilla was a part of that sort of block, but it split. And sort of the islands have always had an antagonistic relationship with each other, even though, you know, they are one state. You have St. Kitts, which is seen as the more sort of developed side. That's where you would have rich people hiding taxes or buying homes and citizenship. And then you also have Nevis, which is seen as sort of, you know, less developed and somewhat neglected. And these things matter because the reason that you can have it where the Labor Party was in power for over two decades is that 
politics on the island, even though it's small, is very uh, tense. It's very uh, political. You have it where in other Caribbean countries that adopted this sort of Westminster-style system, as St. Vin- Kitts and Vincent did, they have this sort of divide-and-conquer political strategy. Thus, people vote on parties based for party loyalties. And so the snap elections, which just happened, was based on a no-confidence vote in the current uh, People's Labor Party that was initially supposed to have you know, governed the country for five years. And the People's Labor Party is a new party in St. Kitts and Nevis. It was started in 2013 by two defectors from the Labor Party. And so I'm just reminding people here of this context because the Labor Party that Terrence Drew just you know, won the no-confidence vote snap elections in is a party that has always dominated politics in the country. I think that the fact that they lost in that no-confidence vote is not surprising because just as we saw in Guyana a few years back, the People's Labor Party that was ousted in the no-confidence vote was a coalition party, not a strong, viable force on its own. And it was the disunity amongst the coalition that ultimately caused its failure in the election. Um, That being said, I also want to note that people may hear Labor Party and People's Labor Party and wonder, you know, are these both aren't these both sort of left parties? And I would say that they are, you know, liberal parties and there's no strong ideological divisions between the two. And so party loyalty symbols, the fact that Drew is young appearing, all of those things matter. Yeah, that's very interesting. And, and I really appreciate you breaking down a lot of that context, Dr. John. And so when we talk about the dynamics um, between these two parties, like you're saying, it isn't so much that there are really noteworthy ideological differences. It's more so about uh, conceptions around party uh, affiliation that seem to have uh, uh, drove this. And uh, uh, from what you're uh, breaking down, I mean, these kinds of tensions and this, you know, fierce loyalty that people in the country feel to their party affiliations. I mean, is this a part of what drove the the no confidence vote that triggered these snap elections? Or were there also other uh, perhaps material issues that were factors as well? So there were definitely other issues and factors that drove the no confidence vote. So I think that when the so when the People's Labor Party came into power, you had it where a lot of people in St. Kitts and Nevis were disillusioned with politics. You had it where the Labor Party under, uh, I think it was Devins, I, I'm not remembering the name right now, leadership, they had accusations of trying to rig elections and stuff. So when the People's Labor Party initially came into power, it was this belief that the old party was you know, being corrupt, undemocratic, trying to rig elections. And when people protested to have a sort of fair election, They uh, responded with overwhelming police force, and that drove sort of people's Labor Party voters to the polls in higher numbers, which is how they were able to gain power. Now, on the heels of the no-confidence vote, I think it would be remiss to not mention the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the Caribbean region. A lot of these states lost a lot of tourist revenue. A lot of these states also lost a lot of investment revenue. And the unemployment rates uh, in the Caribbean region, especially in the English-speaking Caribbean region, sort of skyrocketed. And the sort of People's Labor Party, their mission in, you know, in this realm of high unemployment, COVID-stopping tourism, was to sort of advertise and relax sort of the already lax laws that they have on citizenship requirements. And so what became a contentious issue, and we also see this happening in other states of the Caribbean as well, is sort of 
foreigners being able to buy citizenship, and if not buy citizenship, buy up huge amounts of real estate, which has increased sort of the cost of rents, housing, and living in a lot of Caribbean countries, including in St. Kitts and Nevis, which is already a highly unequal island, wherein if you are in poverty, you are in drastic poverty, wherein on a small island like St. Kitts and Nevis with a you know substantial unemployment rate, you have it where people need at least 3000 U.S. dollars a month to survive. And I'm talking about U.S. dollars here. And the reason that this is important is so just so that people can understand the impact of foreign and private investment purchasing of real estate um, in St. Kitts and Nevis. And so, again, you have it where these parties don't have these strong ideological divisions. But I think that the reason why the Labor Party was able to get back power in these snap elections is the fact that Dr. Terrence Drew, he spoke about the high cost of living. He spoke about actual issues like being able to afford food, being able to get a house, being able to get land. He spoke about those issues, whereas while the People's Labor Party, they were talking about, you know, trying to fix employment and doing all of these other government programs that can help alleviate some of these stresses, they weren't necessarily naming the causes as, you know, this is a housing issue and we need to address the housing issue and sort of high inequality in housing. We also need to address employment, et cetera, et cetera. So one thing I think we can expect in the next few months from uh, Dr. Terrence Drew's Labor Party and St. Kitts is the fact that you'll see a lot more uh, things like cash grants going out to uh, Kitsians and uh, people in Nevis just so that they could be able to keep up with sort of the rapidly increasing cost of living in St. Kitts and Nevis under the guise of a COVID pandemic, which has seen the local population suffering tremendously while a richer expatriate and foreign class has benefited tremendously in terms of purchasing things for favorable prices given the pandemic. Yeah, and this is an important point, and I want to stay here for uh, uh, just a moment, Dr. John, because you're breaking down the, the harsh economic realities foisted upon the Caribbean region in the aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, uh, to countries that already uh, weren't that wealthy to begin with. And like you say, we're deprived of these sorely needed tourism dollars. And so <clears throat> this is a broad question, but how, uh, and you touched on this some in your comments a moment ago, but how how else did we sort of see the coronavirus pandemic impact politics in the Caribbean region? Yes. So with the COVID-19 pandemic, and I mentioned this a bit earlier about the West Minister style of politics and a lot of uh, English-speaking Caribbean islands, whereby party fealty and loyalties are strong in terms of distribution. With the COVID-19 pandemic, I think you had a lot of governments that were confronted with the fact that you need to provide services for a broader swath of the population and not just who's seen as, you know, being favorable to your party because it is a global pandemic and it affects everyone regardless of party affiliation on the islands or where they live on the island. And so I think that a lot of political parties who were unable to adapt and sort of change their messaging around providing for every single citizen within their country uh, in the midst of this pandemic was unable to do well. And so part of the sort of divide and conquer rhetoric that you see with political parties in the Caribbean is that ruling governments make it the case to give speeches, to give uh, daily TV appearances where they bash the opposition party 
and by effect bash the supporters of that opposition party. Um, and when in the midst of doing this, they don't necessarily put forward or they put it forward last what it is that their party is doing to help people. And so I think that throughout the Caribbean, you have a lot of people who are disgruntled with politics in the wake of COVID-19, especially if they view a political party as simply bashing the opposition and not stating what it is that they are doing exactly uh, for the people. And so when COVID when the COVID-19 pandemic happened, I think a lot of countries whose politics appear to be less uh, conflictual, oppositional between the parties are those countries where the ruling party was able to use the COVID-19 pandemic to not just address their supporters, but adopt language in which they were addressing the broad population, saying that we're going to get through this together. Whereas we're giving grants to all who are poor because the COVID-19 pandemic impacted everyone in this particular region, everyone in this uh, particular parish, neighborhood, uh, village, or town. And so the parties which were able to switch their rhetoric to be to utilize the inclusive language that the COVID-19 pandemic facilitated, those are parties which we've seen um, not only became more successful, but also won by larger margins in some of the elections that have been occurring throughout the region in the past three or four years. Whereas those who still try to keep on to the same sort of divide, divide and conquer rhetoric, they lost out in a lot of these snap elections. And then you also have some parties who won on sort of their divide and conquer rhetoric just because they have a larger base of supporters. But even those parties, too, um, and I'm thinking in particular about uh, Guyana, for instance, those parties, too, are also making an effort to show and televise that we're giving grants to these communities where our own supporters don't traditionally come from. And so in regards to the COVID-19 pandemic and how it changed Caribbean politics, I think it made politicians themselves more mindful of the fact that they need to use inclusive language because everyone is being affected by this pandemic, no matter party affiliation. And if the people pick up that their language is too divisive, it turns people off because the pandemic is still very much real um, for a lot of these countries, not just in regards to lost revenue, but also loss of life and inability to find specific jobs. Yeah, and this is deeply interesting to me because if I'm understanding you correctly, Dr. John, it sounds like a lot of people in the region have grown wary of a kind of uh, opportunism of uh, different parties without uh, uh, basically presenting a positive program that will actually benefit their material conditions. Is that about the long and short of it? Yes. So people are definitely, and I'm, I've been happy to see this term, but people on the ground have definitely been switching to looking at what it is that the party is actually doing and not just their rhetoric because of the situation uh, on the ground that the pandemic has imposed, caused, and hindered in some people's activities. Absolutely. And on a similar note, Doctor, I'm curious how you situate um, this uh, development in St. Kitts and Nevis, this recent election and its results, how you situated within uh, the broader political trends that we're seeing across the Caribbean, uh, as you were just describing? Yes. And so some of the broader trends that we can expect to be, you know, very important in the next couple of months, I don't think it's going to take years, I think it's going to take months, is the importance of uh, po politicians and political parties being able to give pr or provide people improved health care in the Caribbean region. Again, you also have a big issue of not only affordable housing, but also land distribution. 
and also educational access. So in a lot of Caribbean countries, schools have to close down due to the COVID-19 pandemic or start late or go on longer because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And so based on how any sort of political party in the region decides to address issues of health care, address issues of land, address issues of housing, and address access to education, it's going to be very important not just for their political success, but also for success in the country. And also, given that these main issues, major ones being sort of the housing and land issue, as well as health care and access to education, being seen as necessarily progressive issues in the sense that people want progressive uh, policies towards things like health care, housing, and more access to education, I think that you'll see a bunch of younger, you know, younger generation or younger leaders being elected in many states who are speaking to these issues. And not only that, but because they'll be younger and they'll have to necessarily speak about progressive causes, I think that you'll have a lot of Western countries like the U.S., Canada, the European Union, uh, focusing on these more intensely on these sort of snap elections that happen. And so something that was shocking to me was the fact that when after the elections happened in St. Kitts and Nevis, you had it where uh, Nicholas Maduro was congratulating Dr. Terrence Drew. And so was Anthony Blinken at the U.S. State Department. And so I think that this uh, wave of sort of younger people being voted in, speaking on sort of issues that the people want to be addressed in a more progressive or left manner, is going to have a lot of eyes on the politics in the region, with people not being sort of sure what to expect uh, these sort of leaders to do, especially because they're being elected precisely because they're perceived as um, younger addressing these sort of progressive issues that speak to the population and are innovative in how they sort of uh, devise their own electoral strategies and do outreach to people in the countries. And so I think that it's important to keep a watch out, especially given the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, where we see that, you know, if we're being honest, high unemployment and lack of tourist revenue in the Caribbean region translates into foreign takeovers and privatization in the region as well. So I think what will be interesting is seeing how these newer leaders respond to it, which investments are being had in the country, and also protests. I don't think that a lot of people know that in 2013 or in 2015 that people in St. Kitts and Nevis were protesting about the politics in their country. People were also protesting about unemployment and, you know, sort of being paid on time and these sorts of things. And so I think that uh, a lot of these protests happened and are missed. So when these sort of snap, elect snap elections happen, people are caught, uh, you know, by surprise. But I think it's important to always remember that it's the local material conditions which matter. And if the local material conditions are not being addressed by political leaders, I think that this no confidence vote and the one a few years ago at Guyana shows that people are ready to use their powers to oust people out of office if they don't feel as if those people are addressing the grievances that matter to the mass majority of people in the country. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Dr. John, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman 
And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Friday, which means it's time for our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle with Nate Wallace, the co-host of the Red Spin Sports Podcast. Nate, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks up. Doing well, Nate. Doing well. And of course, as the Deshaun Watson saga continues in the National Football League, there's yet another uh, perhaps questionable decision being made here by uh, uh, the Cleveland Browns for uh, Watson to actually start as quarterback for today's game that they'll be playing against the Jacksonville Jaguars, your sort of home team there, Nate. And, you know, I'm just just sort of generally wondering what you think of uh, this decision. I feel like in a number of ways, if you look at how the Browns have just been, you know, uh, uh, handling a a lot of this uh, situation from the trade to uh, uh, this piece of starting him now and uh, uh, to how his contract is structured and all those sorts of things, you know, even as uh, Watson himself continues to, you know, deny uh, the many uh, allegations of sexual misconduct, sexual assault and things like that. It just does not uh, reflect well, I think, on the organization. But wondering what you're thinking about their decision to start Watson tonight, Nate, and uh, what do you sort of uh, predict for the response? Before we get into like the yeah you know, the, the rightness or wrongness of it and, and, and whatnot, I'll just kind of explain the the basic details here. So under the NFL CBA, uh, there are 17 regular season games, three preseason games each year. Now it used to be 16 and four, but that recently changed. Uh, they only have three preseason games. The preseason games do not count towards suspension totals. So you know all these years you'd always have four game suspensions. Somebody tested positive for weed or whatever. And, they played in the preseason. You knew that once the regular season started in September, they were going to miss four games. This situation is obviously much different. Um, you know, the Browns gave Deshaun Watson very notable, a fully guaranteed contract, something that does exist in Major League Baseball, does not exist in the NFL. But negotiating-wise, it's become something that you know agents have pushed more harder for and tried to exercise their leverage. It's interesting that the first fully guaranteed contract of this nature we did see Patrick Mahomes with a 10-year $507 million deal last year but that wasn't all fully guaranteed that's assuming that he plays out the whole 10 years under those terms uh, without it being restructured in some way um, this is five years $230 million, um, fully guaranteed and there's limits in the language in the contract it's specified that even if he's suspended, uh, there's caps on how much he can be fined. Um, so much so that he's over his more than forty million dollars salary is only at threat of losing a you know, million or so dollars this year in, in fine money, even if he is suspended longer. And which brings us to the other issue: the six-game suspension that was brought down by you know, Judge uh, Sue Robinson, and um, with the arbitrator in this case. And under the terms of the collective bargaining agreement. It used to be that Roger Goodell, the NFL commissioner, was sold to a jury executioner of these decisions. Now it allows both parties to be able to request an appeal to the arbitrator ruling, arbitrator's ruling. Uh, she ruled you know, with the evidence at hand for six games, which most people, observers, saw as you know, the lightest possible you know, that it could be given, essentially. And you know, I don't want to get conspiratorial. I mean, maybe I do, because 
you know, I tend to think that how independent is she? Does she give six games and then allows Roger Goodell and the NFL to come out and be the responsible party from a PR perspective, pushing for a harder suspension, pushing for a year, a year plus indefinite, um, and then you know having to you know, meet conditions for for reinstatement. Um, I, Twelve games seems to be the lightest it's going to end up being now. But in terms of the Cleveland Browns, the last, the last part of this your question. Uh, they're playing him simply because they don't know what if the six games is upheld, right? They want to make sure that the first time he hasn't stepped on a field in a game situation with his teammates isn't going to be in like late October, November without any reps to fall back on, any kind of familiarity in a, in a non-practice type situation. So that's from a purely just football perspective, that's where the Browns are thinking about it. But it's clearly a PR um, nightmare kind of for the NFL. And uh, they, something they wish would just go away. Yeah, I'm sure. And you mentioned NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell. Um, recently uh, uh, at a meeting, uh, reporters were talking to him and they were um, asking him why the NFL was appealing Watson's six-game suspension. And he said, quote, because we've seen the evidence. Uh, there were multiple violations here and there were egregious and it was predatory behavior. He added, those are things that we always felt were important for us to address in a way that's responsible. And so, like you say, Nate, I think it does sort of reflect uh, poorly on the NFL uh, as an organization. And as such, you know, uh, Mr. Goodell seems to be, you know, reacting strongly to the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, it's just uh, it's the fact that, well, it's, I mean, I, I don't want to, it does reflect, reflect poorly. I do think it was good of the NFLPA, the, the Players Union, um, that during CBA negotiations that they did put in the provision to allow arbitration, you know, just because in this case it, it gave an outcome that we all think is, you know, too lenient, um, most people at least, um, doesn't mean that Roger Goodell should just maintain this complete iron-fisted power. Now, granted, when you're being paid just close to $64 million a year in salary, I mean, I always wonder, like, what, what if he came to him and said, Roger, you know, we're going to cut your salary down to $40 million a year. What are you going to do, like, retire, you know, protest or something? <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> but we got to relieve them of these duties here. You know, there needs. I think it's good to have some independence in some ways. I mean, he's now the thing. I don't. I don't know. Is it you know with this you know, the person he's appointed now to handle this appeal of the arbitrator's decision, which the NFL would have the right to appeal in this in, under the CBA now, and the players' union would also have the right to appeal um, a, the first decision. So, for instance, if uh, they had Goodell decide something agreed on that, then they could appeal to the arbitrator uh, if they wanted to. In this situation, the NFL, it's what, it's what I said about the conspiratorial thing. It's like, God, it just seems all she, she acknowledged the evidence, the, the arbitrator, goes through it all, six games. It's almost like teeing it up then for the NFL to be able to like go on the PR blitz and while Roger Goodell is presenting himself as, you know, the, 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 the person in the room, the responsible adult, the person who's, you know, caring about victims and, you know, the NFL players union being the, the people that are the predatory, the predator defenders here and the you know, sexual assault defenders. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it, it's a little suspect. I mean, nobody saw six games coming, but then it comes down. Then the NFL allows Goodell to then hop on the news cycle and make himself sort of be presented as, you know, this, white knight or whatever coming in to rectify this horrible injustice. And 
I don't know. It just, it just seems a little, a little, a little fishy there for me, but the large, the larger implications of this are, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, let's not, let's not forget what this is actually all about. I mean, Deshaun Watson, um, as you know, settled I think 24 of the 25 civil lawsuits against him. It's always going to be hard to push this in a criminal case, but when you, when you get to things where there's not any kind of film evidence, uh, recordings and, it's, you know, he said, she said, he said, he said, she said, she said, whatever it is, you know, those kind of things it can be difficult, especially with grand juries. So um, the fact that it's not criminal charges isn't indicative that, you know, he, he did nothing wrong necessarily. It's just their ability to prove it. Um, it's obvious the number of cases that he settled that he was, you know, using Instagram, you know, maybe this was to fulfill. It wasn't just about getting massage therapy either. I mean, at that point, when you're getting up that many different women, you clearly have some kind of whether it's a fetish or this weird proclivity um, to want to desire to try to get something out of each of these women, like, you know, and it's sort of sexual satisfaction. And, and it's, 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 it's gross. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's just not the kind of behavior you're, any of us would want to, you know, <laughs> hear from friends or family members of ours or, or people we care about. And, uh, and Deshaun Watson, who's built his whole reputation of being such like a good guy, someone who came up with a single mom and, you know, did so much work in the community in Gainesville, Georgia, where he grew up and, you know, his faith was so central to him and everything and really had an unblemished record before this. Um, it's been a, a pretty, 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 uh, you know, stark fall from grace in terms of public opinion. Don't tell the people in Cleveland that, though, because uh, they don't want to hear it. <laughs> well, that, that much is clear. And switching gears a little bit here, Nate, uh, there's this interesting uh, new venture that uh, uh, looks like it's on the rise here called Live Golf, which I believe is a Saudi golf league that uh, uh, features the involvement of Donald Trump. Uh, what is all this about? Yeah. <laughs> all right, so. I know we don't usually get into golf a lot here, so forgive us, listeners. Uh, this isn't really your cup of tea. But this is a little more than just your typical. We're not just breaking down the uh, the British Open here, right? Going <laughs> uh, to look at uh, the Saudis essentially. So they have a sovereign royal fund that's worth like north of six hundred billion dollars. All right, and uh, and what they mean by that is for like uh, it's for essentially soft power uses for the crown for the for the kingdom. Um, to project Saudi power, a lot of it, like the development of London, the new city. When you see when you go to London and the UK, much of that redevelopment, the, the huge growth, has been funded by you know a lot of Saudi investment. When you go to, uh, around the world, it's about um, different cities and, and, and different projects, and even just real estate. You go to New York City, I'd love to see a complete breakdown of how much real estate in Manhattan is owned by Saudis, and not to mention another you know oligarch Trump world or whatnot, but. With this, I think what they see is Greg Norman, former um, great you know, golfer, Australian major, major championship winner, many times over, um, had this idea of pushing and pushing. He persuaded the Saudis to come forward with massive amounts of funds. I mean, it's kind of hard to blame some of these PGA Tour golfers for taking them. You're talking about life, life change, like multi generational type, like wealth that they're throwing at you. Um, and granted, it's it's like it's you know it's, 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 I love how our media just talks about Khashoggi, you know, Khashoggi, Khashoggi, They never once just talk about like all these just nameless, faceless, Yemeni people that they're just being slaughtered. It will, I mean, they're not nameless and faceless. It's just they are to us in the West because we don't ever hear anything about them uh, that are being slaughtered in Yemen. But it's Khashoggi, Khashoggi, Khashoggi because he was one of their own. He was part of the Washington kind of press corps, part of that club. And uh, when that happens, it all becomes, uh, you know, it's beyond the pale. 
So that that's the main rhetoric. It's about the Saudis' human rights abuses, but they they don't they, they basically i.e. Khashoggi when you hear the media talking about this. The money that you're talking about, money that is uh, you know double, triple, quadruple, even t- as much as ten times what um, the PC two are playing. And the, and, the, and the thing is, that's interesting with Liz is the Saudis are on that stupid type of money, what you call it, FU money type type level, that they don't even care about making a profit, making returns these first few years at all. They're purely doing this, what do they call it, market disruptors to try to break into the PGA Tour kind of monopoly over golf. You know, I mean, on some level, I think it's kind of funny to not hear the PGA Tour sitting here crying like they're the sisters of the poor, uh, you know, with all these multi-million dollar sponsorships, $700 million in TV revenue coming in. But yes, the Trump aspect, he hosted a live tournament. And it's not on TV if you want to watch a live tournament. Phil Mickelson is a live golfer, uh, former you know, longtime major champion. Dustin Johnson, former Masters champion. Brighton DeChambeau, just to name a few of the people that have gone over to live and left PGA Tour. Uh, they're going to have these really tier to Gen Z, millennial types try to do like more kind of make golf more fun, less like rigid. And um, it's interesting that what I need the question, I'd like to hear what you think too. Like, what do you think the Saudis are trying to do um, other than just, you know, clean up their image internationally, maybe prepare for a, uh, uh, what they hope may be a larger role in the region, uh, you know, build up, cash aid, build up, be a people to be on their, their camp, you know, when they uh, try to challenge Iran, which would be insane uh, because the, 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 the for a lot of reasons that I'm time to go into right now. But it's uh, to me, there's something here more than just this golf. The golf is a vehicle, like so many things, it's sort of like Cutter with the World Cup, to try to transform the image of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia on the global scale. And this is just uh, the vehicle they're using. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, I, I tend to think that it's almost certainly just solely based on the PR thing. I think uh, the Saudi kingdom is, you know, well aware of uh, how they're perceived throughout the world and perhaps wants to use sports to kind of shine that up. Uh, but the last thing I wanted to ask you about today, Nate, was about uh, Kyrie Irving, who's uh, uh, reportedly saying that he wants his new contract to guarantee that uh, he wouldn't have to pay more than 60 games per season, not have to pay games back to back, and all sorts of other things from uh, the eccentric uh, superstar here. So uh, what's going on with Kyrie and uh, what do you think is motivating this? Well, I mean, in terms of what's motivating Kyrie, I mean, despite what people think about him, you know, that in the last you know, year with you, know, it obviously became all about you know, the vaccine mandate in New York City. But I mean, it's not really at all what's going on here. This is just all about, even before that, let's not forget that he and look, we're talking about the world of sports here, so it's like we you have to understand that while for you know a lot of normal individuals like you know wanting some time off after like January sixth, the process, the trauma of it, of it at all um, would be something you know most people would support. But like in this world, and I'm not saying it's the way things should be, but we live sports is hyper competitive. It's sort of considered like. You know, when you're teammates and you're talking about the judgment, not of you and I, right, or there's a public at large, but when you're in a locker room and everybody on your team is trying to sacrifice for a, a common goal, you only have so many years being able to play at the top of your game. And after January 6th and 2021, he just kind of takes off and says, I need this time to, to, to think, to chill. You know, that began the process of rubbing some of his best teammates the wrong way. Like, you know, I mean, sure, we'd all like time to, to chill and reflect on, you know, uh, 
you know, bigger things. And the thing that's been frustrating for a lot of activists, I mean, is that in the last two years, um, going back and after George Floyd, um, you know, he did, he, he said a lot of good things about like, you know, the, like how basketball shouldn't be centered over like, you know, much more important things in the world, even making some references when Israel was bombing Gaza to like, then you'd like, you know, really become aware of what's happening in the world and all that. He stays so cryptic with what he's actually saying in these tweets that it doesn't get, he's not identifying enough, enough specific concrete political objective, I guess. Um, and in in, in sort of his messaging that it's more just like let's free ourselves, which look, I get it. You got lots of sponsors, a lot of people that depend on you. It's not just about your money. It's your family members, people that have you know, been in your corner your whole life. And so it's a lot of pressure. I mean, that goes without saying, but you know, it's like he's kind of teeters on the, on the line of like, you know, really wanting to get more into being a critic of us foreign policy and us, you know, uh, and, and empire, but then kind of wants to leave it more on a, you know, I just how the media is controlling our minds, which it is true. The media invades our consciousness in every way possible. Consumerism, the way that we, you know, think about standards of beauty, the way we value ourselves and each other. I mean, there is a lot to be said for, for Kyrie. It's like we, we should celebrate an athlete who wants to be more multidimensional and not just be the standard, you know, shut up and dribble guy. But it's now you tie it into being a teammate and Kevin Durant, you're getting older and wanting to win championships. And other people playing are also professionals, you know, and that, that you know, that unreliability is becoming a problem. And, and it looks like there's a potential for a trade to the Lakers that could work out. He, I mean, Kevin Durant went for first calling for um, Steve Nash and the GM Sean Marks to be fired. So I don't know, does that change if they're able to move Kyrie to L.A.? Is this tweet a, a way of kind of like just further showing the net that like I'm off in my own Zen world here and just kind of like, you know, you might want to sit me off or is it, I mean, I don't know what it's just, but the, it is interesting is all I'm basically trying to say. And there's a lot, just keep an eye on what's going on in Brooklyn. <laughs> That's a fact. Well, we thank you so much, Nate, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moving to a break here on by any means necessary on radio, Sputnik and Washington DC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Friday, August 12, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here at By Any Means Necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. And at that time, you'll be able to give us a ring at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Our operators are standing by. You can also check our show out at sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. You can also hear the show on sputnik.mave.digital. That's sputnik.mave.digital. And as always, we are coming to you live this hour from Rumble. That's rumble.com slash C as in cat slash B-A-M. 
necessary. But wherever you are in this world and however you hit us up, we most certainly want to hear from you. And we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by Margaret Kimberly, the editor and senior columnist at Black Agenda Report and author of the book Presidential Black America and the President. Margaret, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Absolutely. And Margaret, the Justice Department is asking a federal court to unseal the FBI's warrant that they used to search the Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida of Donald Trump, of course, former president of the United States. Uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland gave some comments about this, saying that uh, what motivated this was basically overwhelming public interest, telling, uh, uh, you know, opposed on Thursday, quote, the public's clear and powerful interest in understanding what occurred under these circumstances weighs heavily in favor of <clears throat> unsealing. And, um, you know, I suppose this isn't terribly surprising, given the fact that, I mean, I think this is uh, unprecedented in American history to have a former president's home uh, rated like that. But I was also looking at this uh, recently published survey by Morning Consult and Politico that basically noted that uh, uh, Trump saw an uptick in support from his base uh, following this raid. Uh, according to uh, the piece here, quote, in the August 10 survey, 58 percent of Republican voters said they would support Trump if the 2024 Republican presidential primary were today the highest on record since his 2020 loss. The share of support is up from 54 percent in July and 53 percent in June amid the high profile congressional Jan 6 hearings. They add about half of voters, 49 percent, including 81 percent of Democrats and 48 percent of independents, said the search of Trump's property was primarily due to evidence that he created a crime. And they note that, quote, much of the broader electorate isn't buying his claims of a political witch hunt. But of course, Donald Trump is messaging to the broader electorate. He was clearly uh, using this as red meat to his uh, uh, supporters and it worked. And I'm sure no small amount of donation dollars flowed from this as well. And, you know, Margaret, there's been a lot of analysis uh, around this. I mean, I was talking about this just yesterday saying that, you know, really, you know, to me, this is just sort of a, a, an example of different contradictions we're seeing within the ruling class uh, here in the United States. And the fact that it's, you know, aimed at Trump, I mean, that doesn't mean we should put it in the same category as, you know, the FBI railroading Marcus Garvey or setting up Fred Hampton to be murdered. But you, you actually said something on Twitter that I thought was uh, pretty spot on, Margaret, when you talked about how, you know, a Trump derangement has to end. This Trump derangement syndrome precisely because it lets Joe Biden and the Democrats off the hook for what we're experiencing in this country right now, politically, socially, economically and otherwise. And so how do you see this raid um, sort of factoring in to the political climate in the United States right now that, uh, to say the very least, is uh, quite tense, I would argue, because of how, you know, people's conditions continue to worsen? Well, I, you know, I think in, in general, if you're going to go after a former president, especially one like Trump, who is still um, uh, a political figure who has not retired, like, you know, most presidents, they retire, they disappear to some degree. He's still very much an active political figure. 
excuse me, he's under various investigations. So if you're going to send the FBI to raid his house, it has got to be good. You've got to find, you know, uh, dead bodies and counterfeit money. Uh, it can't be something uh, ordinary. It, it has to be significant. And um, uh, so we don't know if it is. And well, I have to say one other thing. You know, you never know with Trump. It's uh, it could be something that's not that serious that some other president would have just turned over. But you know, Trump he can't get out of his own way, and he has got uh, lawyers like Rudy Giuliani giving him bad advice. So who knows? It could be something that's not that bad. But the as I was pointing out, this is not just a legal issue. It's a political issue. And I know many people who are not Trump supporters by any means who still believe that this was a political attack, that it was meant to keep Trump from running again. So those are the things that have to be uh, considered. And Merrick Garland, the attorney general, did a couple of days later say that he uh, he felt the need to publicly announce that he would unseal the uh, indictment. But then they start leaking stories about uh, nuclear documents without saying what that means. What does that mean? What about nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons treaties? What, what does it mean? But we've, and we've also lived through, we lived through, uh, Russiagate, uh, the hoax, frankly. And yes, I am quoting Trump because it was a hoax. Uh, we were told that the Steele dossier proved that Trump, uh, colluded with Russia. Then we find out the Steele dossier was paid for, by the Hillary Clinton uh, campaign, well, by her law firm, which means it was paid for by the Clinton campaign, and that most of what's in it was just made up. We lived through two years of the Mueller investigation, and it ends with no one being indicted for colluding with Russia. So we've seen the FBI entrapping people to try to get him, which all started during the 2016 campaign. So we've seen this before, and this leads to a lot of cynicism uh, uh, about this raid, about whether it was necessary, uh, uh, about how politically motivated it was. So I think these are all very good questions to ask. And you don't have to like Trump in order to ask them. And I, I made the comment about uh, Trump derangement because, you know, Democrats use Trump as a distraction. They, Biden has failed. I mean, he has failed at everything. He lied during his campaign. He didn't do anything. He's everything from lying about the stimulus payment uh, build back better doesn't happen. Minimum wage doesn't go up. Uh, he he start he the U.S. instigated the war in Ukraine, and they fail. Ukraine has lost. It's pretty clear. So what do they do? They try to turn Taiwan into the new Ukraine and use that country against China. And I'm sure they'll fail there too. And these are very dangerous provocations. So I think people need to be very careful in looking at this. Don't think about how you feel about Trump. Think about how you feel about Biden and what he has and has not done and uh, what the Democrats will do instead of delivering for the people. They wouldn't have to worry about Trump running again if they just gave the people what they needed. I think Biden would be golden if he came up with some sort of student debt relief plan, some something real. 
but they don't want to do that because the oligarchic class that runs the U.S. won't let them do it. I think it's important to say why these things do and don't happen. So that's where we are. I'm, I'm like everybody else, waiting on pins and needles to see what is um, uh, in this this search warrant. But it had better be good. If it is not uh, the equivalent of uh, dead bodies and counterfeit cash, as I said, you're going to see fallout that's going to, I believe, hurt the Democrats. Yeah, I tend to agree. I tend to agree that if it's not something substantive, then it's going to be detrimental to the Democrats as an organization. And I think this is a point that we really got to uh, get into and clarify here, Mark, when we talk about the role that uh, the Democrats play in basically in, in, in the rot that we talk about here in the United States. When you look at these things like Russiagate, like Trump derangement, and we see the Democrats just engaging in all of these things, the, the, you know, these hoaxes and these myths and these uh, uh, politically motivated attack against what is quite obviously, you know, uh, uh, you know, an openly bigoted and reactionary person in uh, uh, Donald Trump. But in a way, they're doing these things and it really just undermines their credibility and in a way sort of digs their own grave uh, as a political organization. Because as you say, as they're doing this, you know, as we see this raid, just like we saw, you know, the the, the two impeachments uh, against Trump, the second of which took place just two weeks uh, before he was going to leave office anyway, uh, never mind the inaction that we saw in the immediate aftermath of, you know, the, the attack on the Capitol on uh, uh, January 6th and things like this. Meanwhile, as you note, Margaret, um, the uh, rank and file person in the United States poor working and oppressed people, all they have to show for all of this is, uh, you know, rising gas prices and rising food prices and just having to deal with one broken promise after another. And uh, Americans asking serious questions. Why are we sending 40 some odd billion dollars to Ukraine when we don't even have enough formula in this country for all the babies? You know what I mean? And so it's just like the Democrats frankly, play all these games and uh, just put on all of these dog and pony shows as if it's going to achieve something, you know, outside of, you know, their own uh, internal echo chambers or whatever. But when one takes a step back and looks at reality, I mean, I really feel like all of this has had a kind of a detrimental impact on uh, the politics of the United States and certainly on the, the, the mass consciousness of the people on the United States. And while they're not alone uh, in that, to be sure, I, I think it just simply doesn't bode well for this coming period as we see these things continue to unfold. Yes, it's um, it's going to be interesting to see. You can't, you know, uh, Biden has these low approval ratings and sometimes they write about it as, as if there's something mysterious going on. People need help and they're not getting it. Uh, instead, they get distraction. And there's, you know, there's a segment of uh, Democrats in the liberal class who love this stuff, and uh, it will uh, inspire them to get out and vote. But I don't think that's true for most people. Uh, most people see 
their um, quality of life diminishing in so many different ways. That's what they're thinking about. And the media can't lead them. Uh, Donald Trump's victory told us, and everybody seems to forget, that there are millions of people who don't care about elite opinion, who don't care what the corporate media say, or who major newspapers endorse, or what the networks tell you about a person. Donald Trump, well, the biggest reason he won is because the Democrats failed. They couldn't even uh, do a a minimally competent uh, get-out-the-vote effort. But be that as it may, it was close enough for him to squeak through in the Electoral College because the Democrats failed in all of those ways in uh, in 2016. So I think we're going to see a disaffected electorate. I mean, it's an off, there's always a lower turnout in an off-year election, but I think it's going to be even uh, lower for the Democrats because people don't see a reason why they should keep these people in office. And as you point out, Trump's people, who are Republicans, um, they will be motivated to vote for uh, their people, not to mention the fact that Republicans actually spend money on off-year elections, so-called down-ballot races. Um, So this is going to be a a big problem uh, for them unless, uh, you know, if uh, these, uh, the search warrant uh, really comes up with something very serious against Trump. Yeah, definitely. And what you're speaking to, Margaret, is actually a part of the appeal. I'd say a big part of the appeal, actually, of Donald Trump to his support base that uh, liberals sort of refuse to acknowledge. And that is the fact that something he understood uh, that people aren't that uh, interested in elite opinions and that they're also sick of, you know, uh, these professional politicians like uh, Hillary Clinton and so many others in that camp. And so Trump uh, sort of came as, you know, an insurgent alternative to that, which, of course, is a ruse. I mean, Trump is a, a purported billionaire. He is an elite himself. And so are many. So were many of the figures that were in his administration. But he was able to get that over enough and ride that wave straight into the White House. And this had such a destabilizing effect on uh, the Democrats that uh, the Clinton campaign had to conjure up this 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 lie about Russiagate and quote unquote collusion and uh, quote unquote meddling. I mean, you know, I mean, this is the same, you know, Hillary Clinton that had hand in literal documented meddling in the uh, elections in in Russia uh, back in the 90s. You know what I mean? And so, you know, it's just this incredible uh, hypocrisy on that wing of the ruling class on the one hand and historical amnesia on the part of the American people on the other that that give these things uh, any kind of substance. And I mean, you mentioned the media, I think, in passing there a moment ago, uh, Margaret. And, you know, I'm wondering how you sort of see their role in all of this. I mean, I see it, frankly, as crucial. I mean, when we talk about Russiagate, there's no way that it would have been able to have the legs that it had were it not for the just breathless uh, uh, repetition of uh, uh, these 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 narratives that we saw all throughout that period being repeated as fact till it was firmly cemented in the consciousness 
of the uh, uh, American people. And, you know, we're not talking about uh, rinky-dink, you know, blogs or whatever, or someone with the random YouTube page. We're talking about the New York Times. We're talking about the Washington Post. And from that, all of the broadcast platforms that take their cues from these major platforms like CNN, MSNBC, so on and so forth. You know what I mean? And so it really feels like the uh, media was weaponized uh, in this way in terms of just, you know, really undermining, I think, a lot of people's faith in different institutions in the United States on top of just calling American people stupid. Like literally there were uh, several instances where these major platforms basically said things either implicitly or explicitly saying, well, isn't it a shame that Americans are so dumb that they were duped by Russia in this election and so on and so forth. And so it really is just a wild kind of environment that we uh, see ourselves living in uh, uh, from that. And and I contend that we're still very much living with uh, uh, the ripple effects of uh, uh, Russiagate. And when we take a look around, and a lot of the issues facing us in the U.S. right now, Margaret, be it politically or otherwise, I think we have to give more than a, a, a share of the blame of that to what's been portrayed in these corporate capitalist uh, media organizations. Yes, there's not even a pretense of objectivity, a pretense of journalistic ethics. They not didn't just want Hillary Clinton to win. But they continue to repeat all the lies that she and her campaign told about Trump. Uh, that, I mean, the idea that nobody could find out for a couple of years that the Steele dossier was paid for by uh, the DNC's law firm. The fact that, I mean, that's just very basic. The Mueller uh, uh, investigation ends. How is it not a major point of the story that nobody was indicted for this collusion? It was anybody found guilty. It was process crimes, people who lied about, frankly, minor things to FBI agents, people who, if they just not talked to FBI agents, and that's a lesson for everybody, uh, would never have been charged uh, with anything. Paul Manafort, we're always told about how he was a Russian agent. He was convicted of tax fraud and bank fraud. Uh, And I don't even know how accurate that is. They were desperate to get him on something. So who knows if he even did that? Um, But the media have um, and but Trump, I have to say, Trump helps, helps them. Uh, After um, uh, Mueller testified before Congress, which was a disaster, I don't know how many people remember that. Instead of leaving it alone, he makes some dumb comment to the Ukrainian president because Rudy Giuliani told him there were servers in Ukraine, which he had, you know, imagined well in a drunken stupor or something. But um, so Trump helps them out. We have to say that. Uh, but we do. Uh, the collusion here is the corporate media and the liberal class. And they don't just turn on Trump. They turn on all of us, especially the left to silence us. Uh, the, the hot word is disinformation. Uh, anybody who veers away from that narrative, outlets like yours, which uh, um, uh, dare to present a different point of view or are censored in some way, the um, RT removed from uh, YouTube, Sputnik taken off of YouTube. You can't see either one of them or read anything from them in any EU country, by the way. 
Uh, the New York Times just had an article about, well, there's RT in Spanish and RT in Arabic. We got to censor those too. So those are the same people uh, who, and it's for different reasons, who also want to shut us up. And um, uh, they don't oppose Trump even for the reasons they ought to. Uh, they were terrified when he talked about uh, these trade deals, which are so damaging to American workers. Now, of course, he didn't mean what he said, but when he talked about changing those, when he talked about um, uh, uh, bringing jobs back to the country, he didn't mean that either. But all of these are, are uh, things that are a threat to the U.S. oligarchic class. And that means the New York Times and the Washington Post and the networks and NPR are all going to oppose anybody who says those things. Now, they don't care about the uh, uh, issues that Trump presents that make him really dangerous. They don't really care that he's a racist. I don't think he's more racist than other presidents. I just think he's not as smart about um, uh, he's not as smart as, and tries to cover it up. Or somebody like Biden, where they cover up for him his uh, various racist acts over his political career. So uh, this is uh, where we are again with these same people trying to bring Trump down, but not caring about us. And that's why they need him. So Biden lied about raising the minimum wage, lied about Build Back Better, lied about uh, student loan debt relief, uh, lied about ending sanctions against uh, countries like Cuba, which they, you know, allowed to have this terrible uh, fire. And, and they uh, obviously didn't offer to help because his foreign policy is Trump's foreign policy. It's the same. So they need to have a distraction. They need Donald Trump as a foil. And that is going to be very problematic as this uh, investigation proceeds. Absolutely. And what do you mean, uh, uh, Margaret? I mean, you know, the, the U.S. offered technical advice to Cuba, you know, j just what you need after a, a huge fire. But, yeah, I appreciate you raising uh, Manafort in cases like it, because that that was the, the, the Russia gate without Russia that I think folks have forgotten about. Because, I mean, in my mind, all these cats really got charged with was being corrupt rich dudes. And I don't think that was ever in doubt. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by Margaret Kimberly. And we've got a couple of callers on the line here. First up is Tarif. Tell us what's on your mind. Thank you again for taking my call. First, I'd like to say free drone science. This, this is um, a continuation from yesterday dealing with reparations. This is what Africa have to do. They have to do the heavy lifting. Since there's one being African, they have to start running commercials, pushing Europe and the United States to give reparations to them. By running um, 
commercials in the United States and Africa, and also using force a major and um, also stringing out new contracts for uh, African resources that can force the hand of Europe and the United States to give them the reparations that they, des- uh, they need. And also, that would also help us out. Of course, you would have these fake activists and the activist groups will stand up and try to uh, redirect it, um, throw in misinformation and, and um, disinformation to try to destroy it. But it won't work because if they're talking, if the African leadership just talking straight to the African Americans and we talking straight to them, population-wise, then with open transparency, like an open open conspiracy thing, then nobody can get fooled. So I wrote about seven, I wrote nine African embassies today, Nigeria, Ethiopia, um, Ghana, and some others about my uh, solutions to how to get uh, reparations. And it's pretty nice. I wish y'all had an inbox where I could see y'all. Y'all can take a re- y'all take a look at it, you know, but. Yeah, that's all I needed to say today. Thank y'all for taking my call. Well, thank you, Tarif. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, next, we have Jonathan. Tell us what's on your mind. Yeah, I want to talk about uh, Margaret was uh, saying a lot of disparaging thing about the Mueller report being not accurate and, and, and bad comments. First of all, uh, the Mueller report was to show all the the actions that Trump did. Trump, Trump has broken so many laws. It's ridiculous. And you guys are worried about him. Being uh, and, and now possibly he has uh, top secret documents up here, which we already know he has because they already took out like 40 boxes that he had at his house. So that, that in there is, is a violation. And back to the Mueller report, uh, other, other uh, uh, entities always pay for political stuff. And you're talking about most of that stuff was, was not true. When Mueller found collusion to be true, it was not prosecuted by Barr because Barr said some other off-the-wall stuff that has later, of course, since recanted. So what is she talking about? Well, what what was the character of this collusion? This is the part that's never actually been clear. And first of all, I should also say, literally no one here is worried about Trump. And so I think you've gravely misunderstood us here. No, she flip-flops back and forth with, with talking points that point more to a right-wing a lot of right-wing conspiracy stuff. Very well, see, well, see, this is precisely what we're talking about. This is precisely what we're talking about. Whenever we sort of lay out the objective reality of, of what the issues are, both with Trump, uh, the Trumpist wing of the Republican Party, the Republicans in general, and the Democrats, really that entire wing of the ruling class, it's viewed as being, quote-unquote, pro-Trump. This is why we call it Trump derangement syndrome. Because whenever Donald Trump is brought up, literally all critical thinking faculties and reasons Reasoning fly right out the window and into a dumpster somewhere. But you see, we have to really be able to understand the dynamics of what is happening here, both domestically and internationally, because this entire debacle and really the kind of a degraded state of politics in the U.S. in general is a huge part of what led to the rise of Trump. And so to point this out, to point to the conditions that led to the rise of Trump, to point to the uh, uh, mistakes and the hubris and arrogance of the uh, uh, Democrats that that basically let them stroll right into the White House is not a right wing uh, orientation. It is simply objectively factual. But I mean, Margaret, he, uh, you know, uh, directed this towards you. So I'll let you respond. Yeah, it's uh, it's very simple. Mueller ended his investigation without any indictment charging anybody for colluding with the government of Russia because there wasn't any. So uh, that's just a fact. 
it ended without any indictments. The indictments were people who talked to the FBI uh, uh, and not about anything substantive. It was all process crimes. Or as I said about Manafort, uh, being convicted of tax fraud and bank fraud. Uh, so it was nothing that we were led to believe. All these months of the walls are closing in and Trump, he's, uh, he was a colluder. And there is nothing to back that up. There just isn't. And the reason people insist on believing it is because they keep that's what they keep being told by the corporate media who are uh, in no way friends of ours. And I have to say that the left have to talk about this because they use Trump to shut the rest of us up. They use Trump to distract us. They use Trump to defend people like uh, Joe Biden, who do nothing to help the people. So it's incumbent upon the left. We have to talk about this. And also, Trump won in part because Hillary Clinton was scheming with her friends in the uh, intelligence community to find dirt on him instead of doing what she should have done and had a uh, get out the vote operation. So anybody who's uh, mad that Trump became president ought to be mad at the Democrats, too. And we have to remember how all this happened. We have to remember how we've been strung along uh, with nonsense by people who uh, use it to keep from doing anything uh, for us. Uh, I, but I, I wanted to respond a little to the other caller. We um, have an interview uh, this week on Black Agenda Radio, which you can see on uh, here on blackagendareport.com, uh, about the uh, issue of reparations, which I believe he was uh, referencing. And you should uh, read blackagendareport.com every week, every Wednesday, a new issue. We talk a lot um, about pan-African uh, issues and how we here in this country uh, can advocate for the continent as anti-imperialist uh, people, as uh, people of, uh, of African ancestry ourselves. Yeah, definitely. And the last thing I want to say on this is that, you know, we, we should always bear in mind, what is the claim that lays at the root of the Russiagate myth? And the claim that lies at the root is this idea that Russian President Vladimir Putin just wanted Donald Trump to be president of the United States so bad for reasons uh, that I'm still not totally clear on, that he somehow brought Trump in, you know, I don't know, had coffee with him or something, and basically finagled or rigged the U.S. Uh, election some kind of way to ensure that he would be president. Okay. And as we've been saying, there's uh, just nothing that's actually been shown to show that there was anything like that. And that's why all these word games are always played. Collusion, meddling. If you notice, they're never rightly defined. It's never said precisely what that means. And so all this other stuff is thrown at the wall to muddy the waters and to make the whole thing seem legitimate. And like we were saying during the last segment, when it's incessantly repeated over and over and over and over again by the most prominent media platforms in this country, well, then it becomes true and legitimate in the minds of the people so that they're on the side of this whole thing and thereby just adding to the rot that is eating away at this country day by day by day. And if someone hears this and feels that that is a pro-Trump sentiment, I would strongly encourage you to develop your uh, uh, political analysis. Uh, looks like we have another caller on the line here. Brave, tell us what's on your mind. 
guys. How you guys doing? Um, I wanted to commend uh, Margaret Kimberly on on her response to the caller. Um, and no disrespect to the caller, but I just find it frustrating. I feel like um, I feel like uh, Democrats. I feel like Democrats, and I feel like the establishment, obviously. But I feel like the Democratic Party and um, a lot of the left leftists. They kind of use Trump to uh, manipulate our people, man. Like I don't, I don't, I don't want our people. Black people have been through a lot in the U.S., right? Uh, um, obviously, right? And at no point did we succumb to our fear, right? But uh, this orange person with Twitter fingers, for some reason, um, the, the media has been able, to, the, the Democratic Party, through the, through the use of the media, right, have been able to use this orange boogeyman to, to strike so much fear in our people that, um, we are willing to go and and elect uh, a clear bigot, old and decrepit as he is, who is now who is now funding literal Nazis. And look, we can't get reparations, but we can give six, we can give sixty what sixty fifty odd billion dollars to, to Nazis in a, in a whole other country. And and for the most part, in the mainstream, our people are not concerned with that. Like like they're not. But if you if you raise any points about Trump, then all of a sudden the the average black person all of a sudden knows and, 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 and can pay witness to the great race racist that is this orange dude. And I, I just I find that it's a um I find it to be very frustrating and I do not understand how we succumb to um to the to the constant barrage of media in, in this way that we allow it to um to strike up so much fear in our hearts. Like literally running out to vote for a straight up and down bigot who's responsible for policies that imprison so many of our people, right? Help destroy our, our, our communities, right? Uh, it, I, just, I just don't get it. So I, I just, I, and I find it to be very frustrating, right? So I just wanted to commend Mark Kimberly for her response. And, and I would hope that, I hope that at some point we can shake our fear of Trump because I, I just it's, it's unreasonable to me. Like you want me to be afraid of this orange dude who used to be on TV, who many rappers used to love rap, um, writing bars about. You understand? Know as a former MC myself, I used to pin them bars too, right? And you want me to be afraid of that person because of what they do on Twitter and because of how they behave and and, and their uh, Neanderthalish um, uh, 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 ways of, of carrying carrying yourself, right? But at the same time, you want me to be accepting of literally funding Nazis and, and not rec recognizing that, that that in itself is white supremacy. So and that's all I want to say. Well, thank you, Bray. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. And I agree, you know, like we've been saying, this whole thing is definitely a deflection play. It's a thought killing process. And in terms of, you know, why people, uh, uh, you know, fall for it, basically, for for a lack of a better phrase, I mean, it's propaganda. It's precisely what we're saying. And what it makes me think of, Margaret, it just reminds me of, you know, uh, just how constraining this false choice is, right? of the ruling class political duopoly in the United States. Every two and four years, we are put in a position where we're told that we have to uh, uh, choose one of these two ruling class parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, 
who have the same class interests that certainly are not the same as ours, the masses of poor working and oppressed people. And I would actually go so far as to say their class interests are contrary to that of working people in this country and things like this. And uh, this is set before us as the only real choice. And if we don't engage in that in the quote unquote right way, well, then if there's any issue, then we were a part of the problem. The blame then is put on us. It's not on the people who uh, are actually elected, who say that they're going to do all these wonderful things. It's uh, upon us for not uh, supporting supposedly the right person. But we have to understand that all of this is emanating out of the contradictions of the capitalist system itself. Donald Trump, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Mike Pence, Chuck Schumer, Mitch McConnell, these are representatives of the capitalist class. I don't care if they wear a blue tie or a red tie. It makes absolutely no difference to me or to any of the countless people around this earth who suffer from U.S. imperialism, which is capitalism at its highest level. And so it's just, I think, a sort of real uh, uh, view, if you will, of a lot of the objective conditions facing us right now that ultimately, Margaret tells me, that we absolutely must organize an independent movement outside of this political mainstream, outside of this capitalist-ruled political system, because in truth, that is the only way that we're going to really achieve these things that we know we need and we know we deserve, because we know we're not going to get it by just checking a box by someone because they have a D or R by their name. You're you're absolutely right about that. And uh, I mean, let's look at what... uh... These, this choice, we were told that we had no choice but to get rid of Trump. We have to get rid of Trump, and that's the only thing we should think about was getting rid of Trump. Biden was harm reduction. Really, the guy who bragged about the uh, 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 the crime bill of the 90s, uh, you, can, you can see him on video as a senator bragging about it. We do everything but give you the death penalty for jaywalking or something like that. And as the caller said, thousands of black people are in jail because of Joe Biden. Uh, We see the lies he told during the campaign, all the things that people, that black people need. A minimum wage, a minimum wage is like $7 and change, the federal minimum wage. We have a system that's built to keep people impoverished, that's built to keep people living in precarity. And and we have these phony progressives who were supposed to bring these things about. And what did they do cover for him? I give him an A. He's exceeded expectations. They either were stupid and allowed themselves to be rolled or they didn't uh, care when they uh, separated Build Back Better from the infrastructure bill, which told you they didn't care if you got a minimum wage increase. So we have traitors. We have liars. We have people. Uh, Biden finishing Trump's wall. We were supposed to hate Trump because of the wall. Remember that? Well, Biden's finishing the wall. And, uh, uh, you know, Obama, he deported more people than uh, Trump did, despite Trump's uh, uh, very outspoken racism. Obama was the one who deported more people. Biden, look how many people from Haiti he uh, he has deported. So, You know, if you look at the facts and if you look at what these people actually do, we have to, as you just said, we've got to get off this merry-go-round, stop being guilt-tripped into uh, 
uh, voting for people who act against our interests, thinking that we have, especially black people, what are we told every election year? People fought, people died so you could have the right to vote. I don't think we honor people if we give the impression that somebody died for Nancy Pelosi to be the speaker, to have this craptacular system we've ended up with. People fought and died for liberation, and we have to be about liberation and not uh, upholding this system, which is crushing people, where there's money going to Ukraine. Uh, but we're told the, the uh, child tax credit has, sorry, it's over. But every day at sea, or, well, I'm exaggerating every day, but it's $50 billion to Ukraine for the United States to be uh, involved in this dangerous and futile effort to hurt Russia. It helps Raytheon and McDonnell Douglas and Lockheed and all the military industrial complex, but it doesn't do a damn thing for um, anyone in this country. So um, you're, you're absolutely right about that. We're given this false choice of uh, supporting these people, and they're at it all the time. So this week, what was it? This uh, 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 inflation bill. I still don't understand how it's going to stop inflation. And climate bill, which actually gives the government permission to increase its drilling on public lands. So it's nothing that it claims to be, this legislative victory. It's no victory for us. And we have to be truthful about it. And we have to stop allowing people to blame us. I mean, look at the Democrats. Look what they do. Are they ever responsible when they lose? It's always somebody else's fault. Right. It's party's fault. It's uh, Bernie Sanders' fault, even though he endorsed Hillary Clinton, who, you know, and I don't know why he bothered, but anyway— or it's the Russians' fault, or it's Facebook memes. I think that's how it was supposed to have happened in answer to the question the other caller asked. Uh, apparently there were Facebook memes, which I never saw, which told black people not to vote, and they were all Russian Facebook memes. I mean, it's just nonsense. Yeah, and, you know, uh, you know, just, just in thinking, I appreciate you highlighting uh, that, you know, the black liberation struggle was just that, a struggle for liberation. And I'm sorry, if someone died so that we could vote for Joe Biden, then that is a death in vain. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Margaret Kimberly is here as we continue. And Margaret, uh, we talked about Trump and such more than I had planned to today. But I did want to touch on your most recent piece uh, that you published on Black Agenda Report entitled Nancy Pelosi, White Supremacy and China. And, and I appreciate that you, you wrote this because you very explicitly point out uh, of the white supremacist character, not only 
only of, uh, I mean, frankly, not only of uh, Washington's orientation towards China in general, um, but uh, Pelosi's trip to Taiwan in particular, and even the words uh, that she gave uh, while in Tokyo, Japan, when she said, quote, when I was a little girl, I was told at the beach, if I dug a hole deep enough, we would reach China. So we've always felt a connection there. I mean, that is just bizarre. Like that is something that you 100% did not even have to say. And I, I don't even really know, honestly, what to make of this uh, uh, sort of thing, Margaret. But I thought your uh, analysis of it was pretty interesting in terms of, you know, the thinking and orientation of a Pelosi when they say things like this. So how do you see that? Well, you know, she's Pelosi is she's like Biden. I, I believe she also has cognitive uh, impairments. And she just blurts things out. But the good thing about this blurting out is that they tell on themselves. And that this woman who is supposed to be this political leader and supposed to be so savvy, that she would retell this stupid racist trope that uh, basically says China is some kind of other, not quite real place, imaginary place with strange people, that she would, A, repeat it, and then in all seriousness, seriousness claim that it meant she felt a connection with China, a country she just insulted. She insulted their president. Uh, the U.S., um, despite their uh, current madness, still adheres to the one China policy, that Taiwan is a part of China. This has been U.S. policy for more than 40 years. And the president of China, uh, Xi Jinping, in a conversation with Biden, apparently a very tense conversation, made it clear if Nancy Pelosi, who is a representative of the U.S., third in line for the presidency, got off the plane that said United States of America, if she went to Taiwan, it was, um, I don't know if he said this, but I consider it a de facto declaration of war against their country, undermining uh, their policy. She not only after she made that dumb remark about digging a hole to China a few days ago on the I think the Today Show, she said that Xi Jinping is just a scared bully. And so we have these people who are are stupid. They are racist. And I think their antipathy towards China is a lot of it's just racial animus. This not white country should not be a rival an economic rival of the U.S. China was supposed to make cheap stuff for Walmart. That's why they let them in the World Trade Organization, make some cheap stuff. The Chinese um, took the ball and ran with it and ended up creating this economic powerhouse. But that's uh, the U.S. Is, is a hegemon. That means it doesn't want any rivals. You're, you're either a vassal or you're an enemy. And uh, But I think seeing China as an enemy is uh, a lot of that is based on racism. And I think with her dumb words, she proved it. These people are arrogant. They are not smart. These are, this is the same kind of thinking which uh, created this debacle in Ukraine. Uh, now they want Taiwan to be the new Ukraine and for this uh, place to be used um, uh, to target China. And it will only end the same way. Ukraine has lost. The war is over. There's no one serious who says otherwise. You know, they're supposed to have this offensive. First of all, if you're announcing you're going to have an offensive, that means that it's PR and nothing that you can actually do. Russia has won the war. Ukraine is not the same country. They're not going to give that territory back. 
It is a complete debacle. They achieved nothing they wanted. The sanctions have hurt the rest of the world more than Russia. Russia is not going to just leave Ukraine having uh, um, uh, started this war after upon instigation by the brilliant uh, uh, Biden administration. So uh, that's where we are. And the Biden team, the Anthony Blinken and Jake Sullivan and uh, people outside of the in, in administration, like congressional leaders, they're all stupid. And they are all leading us to brinkmanship and uh, danger. And I, you know, an earlier caller talked about Africa policy. Blinken went on a tour of Africa and a South African official gave him a lecture. People should look for it. You can find it on Twitter. And she talked about U.S. arrogance and the U.S. lecturing African countries about what they can and can't do and who they can and can't have a relationship with. Uh, and the, the horrible U.N. ambassador, I, I can't think of her name, but, which is proof I don't like her. Oh, Linda Thomas-Greenfield yeah. can only buy food and fertilizer from Russia. And if they buy anything else from Russia, they're going to be punished. And this South African official, uh, official uh, she told Blinken off to his face sitting right beside him, which was a wonderful thing. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you're, you're right, because as long as China, as long as the U.S. could use China as its personal sweatshop, it was a OK. Right. But like you say, when uh, China uh, uh, began to really ramp up its uh, peaceful rise, not through wars of occupation, not through colonialism, not through uh, sanctioning other countries and all these sorts of things, but uh, through through partnerships, through things like the Belt and Road Initiative, through these win win kind of uh, economic agreements and, and things like that. Well, now now it, it becomes an issue. And I think it's true that since uh, the, the war in Ukraine, this proxy war that the U.S. is fighting with Russia in Ukraine, since uh, the, the military side of that is not working out and really hasn't, I think, throughout the whole process, even though they continue to tell us here in the United States uh, the opposite, it seems as though Washington is, you know, looking about the earth, if you will, for uh, uh, yet another campaign to try to rile up. And, and it seems as though China, as a country that Washington is com you know, completely terrified of overtaking it, um, uh, that then becomes the natural selection. And so they engage in these just ridiculously foolish and, and, and bullheaded sort of moves um, like uh, uh, Pelosi taking this trip to Taiwan. And it's so wild, Margaret, how they try to um, uh, uh, create this impression that somehow Nancy just snuck off to Taiwan and that she didn't, uh, you know, have the approval or the acknowledgement of the uh, uh, Biden administration, as I think you point out in your piece. I mean, the plane that she landed on had United States of America across the side of it. And so it's just not possible that she would have been able to take that trip without the express blessing of uh, uh, Joe Biden. But see, we've been discussing about how, um, you know, uh, uh, these people that are in power, these ruling class politicians, they think so little of us. 
And they think that we are so unintelligent that they can just get these things over on us without any kind of pushback. And then if there is pushback, well, then, you know, we're the ones that's wrong and and not them. You know what I mean? We must be, you know, uh, a Xi Jinping apologist or CCP apologist or, you know, Putin apologist or, you know, insert, you know, U.S. enemy state here apologist. You know what I mean? And so this this, I think, is uh, another example of just the deeply degraded nature of politics inside the United States. And you're right, Margaret, we should never lose sight of the fact of uh, the implications of war with China, the implications of a hot war with Russia is a open nuclear conflict that would be catastrophic for humanity. I think above and beyond anything else, we have to understand that as a potentiality and move based off of that. This ridiculous like gang warfare team sports way that people think about politics in the U.S. You know, I'm on the blue team, you're on the red team. All of that goes out the window when nukes start flying. And so to be clear, I'm not trying to make a case for some kind of uh, uh, unprincipled or uncritical, you know, coalition with reactionaries, anything like that. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we're currently being led by a capitalist class that is perfectly willing to plunge us all into oblivion just so they can hold on to power that much longer. So we have to ask ourselves what's more important to us for the U.S. to remain the hegemonic power on the earth and for U.S. imperialism to continue to be a scourge on humanity? Or do we care about our own lives and the lives of our families and our communities and the lives of folks all across the globe? Now, to me, Margaret, that seems like an easy choice. But the folks sitting in Washington, not only in the White House, but in our Congress of millionaires, seems to want us to throw in our lot with them to our own destruction. Sure. Uh, you're absolutely um, you're absolutely uh, right about that. And I you know, and we can't um, I, I spoke of uh, uh, nuclear brinkmanship, uh, literal World War three brinkmanship, but we're at the brink on the climate. You know, there are droughts all over the world. I've seen photos this week of uh, Europe. Um, the Loire Valley, uh, uh, Loire River is uh, has receded so badly. Uh, I saw a photo. You could see ruins in Spain, old Roman ruins. Why? Because a river has dropped that far. Uh, scorching temperatures all over uh, that continent. This is happening all over the world. It's happening because of carbon, carbon production. And the people running this country don't care. This uh, this bill that was supposed... I can't believe they had the nerve to add the word climate to it. It's a giveaway to the fossil fuel companies. And it says that it's uh, the, the U.S. government can keep drilling for oil on public lands in order to save the planet. Fossil fuel production has to end. It has to end, period. So, um, you know, we are at the brink because of uh, this class that you mentioned and because of their political helpers, these presidents and prime ministers who are just the errand boys and errand girls uh, for these folks. And um, uh, so we've all got to speak up. We don't have a choice anymore. Uh, you know, if the planet dies, we all die. Um, and I, I fear that this uh, death that we are witnessing is it's going to be gradual. I don't think it's going to be like in a science fiction movie with some cataclysmic event. 
I, I think it's something that's going to happen over time with more and more suffering all over the world. And that is what we have to fight against. And we cannot support people to want to help us uh, like the Democrats or Republican will, uh, you know, get out of a climate agreement. A Democrat will go back in, but then do what the Republicans do. And we have to stop that. We have to stop supporting that. Absolutely. You're so right, Margaret. These people are playing with our lives and we have to fight to pull humanity back from the brink when we organize. We're going to leave it there for today and this week here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. Want to thank Margaret Kimberly so much for joining us today. We'll be back next week with an all new slate of episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.